This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Jimmy Dore Show, The Young Turks, Counterspin, The Media Matters Minute, The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, and The Progressive. I just want to catch up because last week we did a whole about 42 minutes on Chris Matthews. Uh, and you, you remember he likes to couch himself as a vehement war critic of the Iraq war, which he was not. He was uh, he was against the war. But then when anybody else uh, spoke out against the war, he tried to shout them down. Like he called Phil Donahue. He said he was uh, he didn't like America. He said he basically did exactly what McCarthy would do. You don't like oh, you you're against the war. You don't like America. Mm-hmm. So he did that. We played the clips. And uh, I'm just going to play you one more because I found some more clips. Remember I said how Chris Matthews had scrubbed the Internet somehow of all the video clips of him cheerleading the Iraq war, which he did because I watched his show in 2003 and 2004 and 2005. And he was the biggest cheerleader. But worse than that, he tried to impugn the character of the people who were standing up against this illegal war. And Well, first of all, here's what he said to Phil Donahue when Phil Donahue said, Phil Donahue said, you know what, Chris? I think you're a little too cozy with the people you're supposed to be reporting on. He said, that's why you don't do, that's why they arrest you for fraternizing with the enemy, because once a guy shows you a picture of his kids, you can't kill him. And that's what, so here's what Chris Matthews' response to that was. I've generally been pretty tough on these guys. I don't think it's fair to call me part of the collaborating with the enemy. You know, that's not my reputation. I got a reputation for being a loner, I think. Not kissing up to the right people. Right. Okay, yeah, he's a real tough guy. He's a real cop on loner, the beat. Loner, alcoholic, you know, it's all kind of the same thing. <laughs> same thing. So here's, so here I found this, I scrubbed, I got this from the, this is from 2005. After uh, he had just went up to the Christmas party at the White House, here's what here's what Tweedy has to say. Phil, sensitive. I was with him last night, the president. We all went to see the president. You were there, went to see the president for our Christmas. You got to get your picture taken with him. It's like Santa Claus, and he's always very generous <laughs> and friendly. And I was wearing a red for? scarf, and I wanted to look a little bit festive for the occasion, look a little preppy. <laughs> and he came up to me and said, "Look, Matthews, I didn't know you're that preppy. This is the president of the United States after his biggest victory." And he goes, "I didn't know you're that preppy." And I said, "Well, you know, we went to Holy Cross, but you guys start." Started with all this stuff. The L guy started with all this stuff, <laughs> and then he started kidding around. I felt like I was too tow snappy with him. I felt he deserves a little. Uh, I mean, he deserves a lot of respect for this, Betty. Well, and those. Wow. <laughs> That's him being against the war, Mark. I don't know if you heard what he said at the end. He deserves a little. Uh, I mean, he deserves a lot of respect for this bet he's well, made. He deserves a lot of respect it. for the bet he's made, the bet being the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. Meaning, the, this, that uh, wasn't a bet. That was a lie you told and to invade a country illegally because you wanted to line the pockets of your friends in Halliburton, Shell Oil, Exxon, Mobil, the whole deal. That's what this was about. It was about oil. By, by bet, he meant gambling with the truth. With other with, people's with, lives. With the truth, yeah, not yeah. other people's lives. Yeah. So that was, Chris Math- that was Chris Matthews on assignment finding out just what it's like to have his head up Bush's ass. Well, I think I think I think in Chris in Matthew's case, it's because he suffers from blackouts. <laughs> <laughs> he can't drink as much as he. <laughs> and he never sounds completely sober ever. Uh, ever. You know that. Was, I, I'm not just saying that because he went to Holy Cross. And obviously, you know, <laughs> Mark, for that that year for Christmas, uh, Chris Matthews gave President Bush his balls. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's the best Christmas ever. Uh, yes, Chris, Chris Matthews stands up to the big guys in Washington. He teases them about the colleges they went to. <laughs> Way to go. So here, I found another clip. Listen to this clip. Uh, he talks about George Bush again. Probably the greatest gamble since Roosevelt backed Britain before World War. He says he says the Iraq War is the greatest gamble since Roosevelt backed Britain in World War II. Big difference between those two things is that in World War II uh, there was an aggressor. It was called the Hitler. There were Nazis. They were trying to dominate the world, so you had to stand up to. In this one, there was a toothless dictator who didn't have any weapons, and then we went in. But he did have oil, so that's the big difference. Here, I'll start it again from the top. Here we go. Probably the greatest gamble since Roosevelt backed Britain before World War II. The president deserves credit. This gamble comes through, and it's not clear yet. If his gamble that he can create a democracy in the middle of the Arab world and he does it, he belongs on Mount Rushmore. Okay, and you belong under a gas truck. How about that? <laughs> this is the guy, because here, you know what, I'll, let, me, let me play, because the reason why I'm playing this, and, and people are like, why are you picking on Chris Matthews? A lot of people, you know, were pro the war, and it's because he said stuff like this, uh, recently, I'm watching, I'm sitting at home, and Chris Matthews, every day last week, was saying... Something foreign to this country took over in those years, 2001 to 2003. We were susceptible, of course, teed up after 9-11, and there were people in the government and push, pushing for it outside, ideologues, all, all who wanted this war and didn't care what damage it did, including to our country's reputation as an enemy of aggression, a country that fights when one country invades another, fights the invader. This time, we were the invader, and nobody yelled, hey, this isn't our part, this isn't what we Americans do. Well, some of us yelled, but maybe we should have done more, laid out there on the train tracks or whatever you do to sound the alarm of protest in a democracy okay so if there was people laying on the train tracks chris it was phil donahue and you got him fired for his job okay so here's one more i'll play one more clip so now jack murtha was the first guy in congress to stand up a decorated war veteran so he knows what war is right. about and he stood up against the iraq war right and he said we it's this is a stupid idea it's time to bring these guys home mm. this is an unwinnable this is bad what the, the opposite of what we wanted to have happen is happening and here's what Chris Matthews had to say to guys like Jack Murtha. This is going to be a very strong political move by the president. He's talking about spending an extra $3 billion for extra economic aid to the new government of Iraq for rebuilding. I think he's going to hold the Democrats' feet to their fire and say, are you going to vote for this or vote against it? I dare you to vote against it. And I think this is the brilliant political move here by the president, forcing the Democratic carpers and complainers to come forward and say, all right, you don't like my strategy for victory in Iraq? Vote against it. Go ahead, make my day. This is Clint Eastwood stuff. Mm. I think the president today is brilliantly putting a marker out there and saying to the Jack Murthys and the rest, okay, vote against Reconstruction. Vote against my plan to turn this war over to the Iraqis. That's my long-term plan. You vote against it, and I'm going to nail you. But behind all this, and this is very important to understand, this president has been absolutely consistent in his philosophy. Okay, so... <laughs> wow. Well, first of all, how can we possibly understand when he's constantly slurring his words? <laughs> he, he was slurring his words. He was slurring his words. So, so, so that, so that guy who called Jack Murtha a carper and a complainer, and how George Bush is going to be like uh, a Clint Eastwood. Well, it's hard to understand whether it's hard to understand sometimes whether he's talking, he's he's just uh, praising the politics of it, or it, without understanding the meaning behind the politics or uh, you know yes he's he's exactly what you're right so so he's praising the, po the 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 maneuvers 
I think you've got to use it while ignoring what's uh, the mechanisms underneath that. Yes. Mark? You know, I actually, I mean, I I like, but honestly, MSNBC, I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I'm a a liberal. I talk about liberal politics on my show, you know, uh, know, in a medium where you don't see, you don't hear a lot of of liberal talk shows, certainly not on the East Coast. And And really, Chris Matthews is the guy on MSNBC that I normally appreciate, but... The picture that you're painting, he he really sounds like he's he's like literally. They say start talking, he talks. They say stop talking, he stops, and he's not exactly sure what happens. <laughs> it does his, yeah, He I, may actually be drunk. He possibly. Yeah. So he and and there, again, I'll just play one more time. This is why I'm playing. I went and found all these clips of him denouncing the people who were standing up against the war and him cheerleading George Bush. He was technically against the war. He actually, before the war, he wrote a column and he would say, I don't think this war is a good idea. But he would say it like this, I don't think this war is a good idea, but if you and George Bush want to have the war, I'm all for it, baby, because I love America and I love you, George Bush, and I love our troops. And now, and now... And, this, and, and, and I love ratings. And he loves... Exactly. Well, he's always that way with every president, though. He's, you know, yes. okay, I, I oppose this Except president Clinton. in the election but now that he's president, we got to support our president. So, so he did. He did, except for Clinton, he made his bones yeah. screaming at the top of his lungs about Bill Clinton the uh, def- defiling. Right, he said he defiled the office of the president wow. because he got a BJ. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if that's all it takes to defile the offense, uh, I think just about every other president has done. You know, FDR needed the help of his aides if he wanted to get on top. You know what I mean? <laughs> Lincoln got well, blown in the temple. Defile the office. <laughs> what did George W. Bush do to the office? Uh, exactly. 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 So, and here's the reason why I'm bringing this up because he's saying stuff like this now. Okay, let's listen to it. Good evening. I'm Chris Matthews in Washington. Let me start tonight with this. I hated the Iraq War. Said so when I saw it coming. Have said so since. The only time I okay. Helped- so there you go. Okay. So he he's saying stuff like that. He's rewriting history, and that's why I'm playing that stuff. Mm-hmm. That shows him to be, uh, oh, George Bush, he's, he's the guy should be on Mount Rushmore. He said that. I checked Mount Rushmore. They haven't put him up there yet. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. So Mike Rice was the basketball coach at Rutgers. Now everybody's seen the tapes already of him throwing the ball at the kids' heads, uh, calling them the F word and uh, fairies as well, and just about everything you can imagine, verbal abuse, but also literally physical abuse, pushing, shoving, etc. Now, uh, there's a little bit of salt in those wounds because we just found out that after he got fired, he got a bonus. <laughs> so now wait, he got fired for being abusive, and he gets a $100,000 bonus. Now, was he a good coach? And you think, well, all right, at least there's a bonus. No! Three years, his record, 44 and 51, a disaster. 
He's a bad coach. He's a bad guy. And he gets it anyway. Now, here's a more insult to injury. Turns out that the athletic director, if he fired him the minute that he saw the tapes, he wouldn't owe him any bonus. He he waited to the end of the season, and once the season was completed, that's why they owed him the bonus. And then as soon as the tapes became public, he was fired anyway. So there's a disaster on, the, on top of disaster. But you're thinking, now what kind of a loony would support that guy? There's going to be nobody, right? In fact, my old friend Dale Peterson is probably thinking the same thing. Who on earth would support such a dummy? And why? Why? Well, let's find out. Because it turns out the Fox News guys liked Mike Rice and thought, well, you know what? Maybe, uh, maybe that's the way you should coach. Let's find out. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, all right, I don't like it. He kicked one player there. I, but on the other hand, you know what? I kind of like old-fashioned discipline on the other hand. Listen. It's time to toughen up. I talk about the wussification of America, wussification of American men. This is it. I maybe maybe we need a little more discipline in society, and maybe we don't have to be a bunch of wimps for the rest of our lives. This is an example of our culture in free fall, and I'm saying because he got fired, not because what he did. Look, you don't want to play for that coach anymore? Then leave. You don't have to stay there. <laughs> but I think that there should be scrutiny of the people who blow the whistle on these kind of things. I can understand. Stop hitting them, maybe. But I like the intensity. I like the drive. I like that he's pushing those kids and that he, he runs a tight ship. I got a paddle in high school. I did something wrong once in gym, and they take a paddle. It's a sawed-off bat, a flat on one side, and they whack you in the butt across the back of the legs. I'll tell you what, I never messed around in that class again. You ever get hit? <laughs> With more than a See? belt. <laughs> and I turned out, you turned out okay. I'm sure the left thinks that we are warped minds. Yeah. Actually, we do, yes. <laughs> Partly because you're supporting this maniac, who the country now thinks is one of the, you know, the worst examples of coaching they've ever seen. And by the way, uh, he runs a tight ship. I mean, isn't that the conservative mindset right there? It doesn't matter what the results are. The, uh, they, I forgot the question, but the answer is violence. Now, remember, the guy was 44 and 51. He was a loser. It didn't work. All that abuse didn't work at all. But it's abuse for the sake of abuse for the right wing. Why are they supporting the guy? They're like, ah, he was violent. Oh, I, I used to get hit, and I liked it when I got hit. And so other people should like it when they get hit. And that's how they got to be who they are. I mean, if you want to do an ad against beating your kids, just show these characters. Show Sean Hannity, Michelle Malkin, Eric Bowling go, you want your kids to turn out like that? Now, what kind of a dummy would support someone like that? And why? JR? Uh, I'm calling bullshit. These rich, overpaid uh, conservatives, I mean, yeah, they got spanked their own up. Guarantee you. Now, these are college kids. They're 18 and up. Guarantee you if their kids are getting shoved around by some coach in school and they saw tapes of it, they wouldn't be like, well, son, you got to toughen up. Stop being a wuss. No, they'd be like, you're pushing my son around? Do you know who I am? You oh, can't push yeah. my son around. You're oh. going down. You can believe oh. you did that to my son. Oh, oh no, 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 J.R. Jackson, you nailed it. Imagine some guy throws a basketball at Eric Bowling's son's head. You think he's going to be like, way to go, coach. I hope you punch him next time. Hell no, he's going to come down like a ton of bricks on that guy. Total frauds. By the way, Sean Hannity, God, they just don't do any research on Fox News. He's like, well, then why didn't any of the kids leave? They did. Three of them left. They lost one of their best players because he was tired of being abused. It's a fact-free zone. They're amazing. And did you notice right in the middle there, by the way, this is one of, one of my favorite parts. Michelle Malkin said, the whistleblower, the coach who turned Mike Rice in, should have been punished. 
Well, first of all, he was let go. What more punishment do you need? Oh, they should have taken a sawed-off back to him. <laughs> a bunch of psychopaths, man. Wise old sage on whom we could all depend. Since he left, it hasn't been the same. Man had taught me how to play the game. And all the times we let him down, he'd make us feel so bad. Never had a harsh word, just a terrible, soft and sad. We gave our all for him until there came the day when he shook our hands and then he walked away. Terror returns. Read USA Today's inch-high headline on April 16th, while a smaller headline read, "That post 9/11 quiet, it's over." Reporters Rick Hampson and Chuck Rosh wrote that the Boston bombing had shattered, quote, a fragile hope formed slowly in the years since 2001 that maybe it won't happen here, not again. Then it did, close quote. Quiet since 2001? As USA Today itself reported last year, such mass slayings are alarmingly common in the United States, with 774 people killed in 156 incidents between 2006 and 2010. Mass killings occur in USA once every two weeks, that headline pointed out. Even assuming the Boston slaughter is politically motivated and therefore meets the definition of terrorism, it's still far from unique in post-September 11th America. Among the long list of incidents, you'd find the anthrax letters that killed five in late 2001, the murder of two at the Knoxville Unitarian Church in 2008 shootings targeting liberals, the assassination the next year of abortion provider George Tiller, and the killing of six at a Sikh temple in Wisconsin just last August. The fact that journalists could fail to recognize that political violence has been part of the United States' recent landscape is testament not to short memories, but to a narrow definition that dismisses right-wing domestic violence as not really terrorism and perhaps to a sheer will to believe that George W. Bush kept us safe after 9-11. The public needs a press corps focused on reality, even when it's not so comforting. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm John Kerr. On Your World with Neil Cavuto, Fox News contributor and former U.N. ambassador John Bolton actually admitted that he hoped that, quote, for the good of the country, the Obama administration had covered up events related to the September 11th attack on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya. If it is a cover-up, if that's what the evidence shows it to be, then it's a cover-up that took place less than two months before a presidential election. And I think that is significant. Honestly, I'd have to say for the good of the country, I hope it is a cover-up rather than the alternative which is that the Obama administration was so blind to the reality of Islamic terrorism, the continued threat from al-Qaeda in Libya and elsewhere. What's more, Bolton falsely claimed that the Obama administration altered CIA talking points to suggest that the attacks came in response to an anti-Islam video. We already knew that Fox News was heavily invested in turning Benghazi into a scandal that takes down the Obama administration. But now they are willing the Benghazi pseudo-scandal to turn into a real one. is really 
stunning on just how bad CNN was yesterday. And um, and Fox, too, but CNN really was really pushing this. Uh, and everybody was citing CNN. And now, you know, like literally it, it was so bad that now when I see stuff from CNN, just the next day, I am literally, I hesitate. It was really bad at about 145. And if you want to see a great, we'll put a link to this. Um, Majority Report producer Emeritus Dorsey, who's over at BuzzFeed now, um, put up a great timeline that is uh, worth seeing. But at 1.45 p.m., John King from CNN cites a Boston law enforcement uh, source is saying that I've just been told an arrest has been made. <laughs> and uh, then they go on where Francine Townsend, Fran Townsend, the, the Bush administration, some type of counterterrorism official, she was horrible in that position. Just a huge political hack. She adds... Uh, some information about it may be domestic, it may be this and that. Literally, at 2.03, CNN analyst Juliet Kamen says, quote, we're being very cautious and speculative at this stage. <laughs> so listen to this compilation that Media Matters put together of, of, some of what was happening in the afternoon. This is just, it's just amazing. Go ahead, play this. From that, I'm told that they, that I was told that they have a breakthrough in identification of a suspect. And I'm told, I want to be very careful about this because people get very sensitive when you say these things. I was told by one of these sources, who was a law enforcement official, uh, that this was a dark-skinned male. Uh, the official used some other words. I'm not going to repeat them until we get more information. Because of the sensitivities, there are some people who will take offense even at saying that. And I understand that. Uh, I'm just saying this was relayed to me by a reputable law enforcement source, uh, a source who had been briefed on the investigation. I could Say, I should say that the suspect was a dark-skinned male. And, and that's information that comes from the police. I know there are right. people and we out can't there. say whether the person spoke with a foreign accent or an American yeah. accent yeah. or anything like that. That that would be premature. Right. So, so, first off, I suspect what uh, that uh, source had had to say after John King. Uh, you know, he said he told me that he was dark-skinned. He said some other things that I'm not going to say. I suspect what those other things were. Oh, and incidentally, oh, this is just a joke. <laughs> this is just, I'm just, I'm, I'm spitballing here. And then uh, Wolf Blitzer has said that he would be insensitive to comment as to whether or not it has a, an American accent or a foreign accent. I mean, this is just stunning. I mean, man, where do you go from this? You go work for Breitbart.com or what? I mean, it's just, it's just sloppy. It's so sloppy and they're so desperate to make themselves relevant again. Uh, they did the same thing with the Supreme Court ruling, and they blew that too. I mean, you know, it's starting to get to the point where if you if there's a breaking story, if you anticipate breaking news, go to CNN to find out what is not the story. The opposite. Of the opposite. It's the opposite news network. The most opposite 
Name the news. You know, I could totally picture the rest of the stuff the cop said being something like, and why are you asking me? I'm just a beat cop. Right. Uh, hey, you know, I tell you what, I'm a janitor. I don't really know, but I think I saw some, you know, some, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to say, some brown skin guy. Well, look, you know, the one thing I will around. say this is that when I was listening to the police scanner on, uh, on the day of the marathon, the police were saying to each other at the time that they had found an incendiary device at the JFK uh, library. They were saying this on the radio. Now, it's just too early. And the problem is that these guys were, were at CNN were just so uh, hyped to report anything that this is what they did. C continue on with this. And, and again, this source did use further language to characterize. And I'm just, as a reporter who's been through a lot of these, who knows that sometimes the information you get does not in the end turn out to be what happens in the end. I'm making a, a personal judgment, forgive me, uh, but I think it's the right judgment. <laughs> I think you may have wanted to make another personal judgment about the initial one. I mean, this is pretty damaging for John King. This is all you have, right, is your ability to assess whether or not your source is credible. And, you know, I don't, uh, I, I don't consider myself a reporter, but I sift through news from many different sources um, and make assessments about credibility uh, all the time. And my credibility hinges upon that. And if I'm not confident, super confident, I just won't repeat it. I will say I'm going to just, I'm going to eat it on this story. I won't be out in front of this story because I just don't feel confident in what I'm reading. And I'm willing to, you know, have people email me and say, why aren't you covering this? And have people say, you weren't out. In front. But that's part of what. The job is, and you know, you gotta, you you gotta suffer uh, the consequences of that. Do we have any more? Oh, no, that's it. So uh, you know, CNN. I don't know what to tell you, but that's pretty bad. Well, and I, I mean, just I think to really highlight the, it's bad on a news level. It's bad on a journalism level, and then to compound all that irresponsibility by throwing out the race of somebody. Well, what to be fair, is, they it? said brown. And so they could have just meant, like, you know, somebody who was tan. It was a tan guy. Uh, his complexion is, I mean, that's the, other, that's the other aspect of this that is so sort of stunning, is that it's just highly irresponsible to talk about the guy's skin complexion um, because that's really irrelevant. Hey, I live in Revere. Or I live, uh, you know, I live in Quincy. I go to the beach a lot. And, you know, a lot of people are like, why don't, why you go to the beach? Oh, I like to go to tanning salons. And then, uh, you know, and this is the guy. John I mean, I mean, yeah, exactly. No, I mean. I mean I, what does it tell us? No, I mean, that the of guy's course. complexion is sort of brown. It doesn't tell us anything at that point. Absolutely, that's true substantively. But I'm just saying in that environment and where people go, when you throw that out, knowing how people are going to interpret it and run with it, I think it's just this that's, whole other element. That's my point. Atrocious. That's my point. Right. Is that saying the guy is brown skinned means nothing. If the cop says to you, okay, even if it's the most sort of um, the most reliable source you could know, it's your brother-in-law. He's never lied to you ever. And he goes, John, the guy's guy's got a brown complexion. As a reporter, at that point, you say. 
That's meaningless. That's like saying, like, the guy has brown eyes. That's meaningless. It doesn't tell us anything. You need more information. That is just chum. That is just link bait. That is, there's nothing to that. And the only reason why you repeat that, as you say, is because it gives people an inflection point to argue, maybe the guy's an Arab. It's meaningless. It doesn't tell you if you were to be told the guy has a uh, Arabic surname. That is something to report, I think. It doesn't necessarily tell you why he's done it, but it's it's something that is at least substantive in some fashion because it goes towards the guy's identity. The fact that he has a brown complexion is meaningless. Well, and then working backwards from both premises is assuming that there actually was somebody to begin with. Well, and then <laughs> on top of that, apparently this person was fictional. Or, or, I mean, who knows? They may have it suspect. They, uh, somebody may have said stuff. Um, I had the idea. I mean, obviously somebody's got the wrong information, but the brown, the brown complexion thing is really, at the end of the day, the most offensive because it tells you nothing. It tells you nothing. It's just a sort of link bait. This is really a weird thing. Nancy Grace and Ashley Banfield from CNN were doing like a split screen interview. You know these interviews where it's like one person's in one location, one person's in the other. And they were talking about uh, uh, crime stories, including the story about um, the Cleveland kidnapping and, and uh, y you know, the whole story with Charles Ramsey, the witness, etc. And as people looked more closely at it, they noticed that they both were in Phoenix. And then as people looked even more closely, they realized that they were in the same parking lot, probably just a few feet away from each other. This is very, very weird. Let me show you a couple of images here. If you'll look at this one, and Natan, maybe you can pick this up. You see this red SUV drive behind Ashley Banfield and then immediately behind <laughs> Nancy Grace. And it's abundantly clear that they're just, they're, they're sitting in the same parking lot doing the interview. And then if we go to another one of these images, you'll see that uh, the same truck goes by both of them simultaneously. And uh, hard-hitting satellite interview. The funniest part is that in this shot, Nancy Grace is holding her earpiece like she's having trouble hearing. You know, Nancy, you might be able to hear Ashley better if you take the earpiece out and just listen to her live audio, like, because she's standing right next to you. Why, why would this even happen? Uh, laziness, but it, doesn't it even look like they might be on a green screen? Well, I think that's just because these animated images are grainy. I don't think that there's really much to that. And then again, if you look at this image, you see that the same truck and bus drive behind each of them. And Nancy Grace still struggling to hear her because, uh, 
of the satellite distance and delay between them. Um, sad, sad. And, uh, you know, some people said the reason is Nancy Grace is on headline news, and even though it's kind of part of CNN, of the, of the company, they just didn't want to have them sitting together because she's kind of like from another network. But I, I don't know that I buy that. It sounds pretty stupid. Yeah, they could have just as easily done something uh, in a studio setting. Yeah. I don't know. This is pathetic. Truly bizarre. Yeah. We should start doing split screen on the show, and I should pretend like I can't hear you, even though we're, we're like 15 feet away from each yeah. other. Lewis, what would you say is the number one reason people should tune into the David Pakman show if they like Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast? I mean, I see it completely differently from, from someone who's just watching it. Yeah, well, but if I was asking someone else's opinion for the promo... I don't even watch our show, so how can I answer that question? I do not watch our show. So Lewis is, isn't even a fan of the show. <laughs> Maybe the answer is Lewis doesn't actually like Can you this be show. a fan of the show? I mean, are you? Can, is, isn't that kind of stupid to be a fan of your own show? I'm a huge fan of this show. <laughs> of course. That's like being a fan of yourself. You're like a narcissist. What, do you put pictures up of yourself at home, too? Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Well, let's look at the way CNN... So now we all know they screwed up last week, right? So they screwed up by saying that they had gotten the second bomber when they hadn't gotten the second bomber, and they reported it a couple of times. And then they report <laughs> they reported that the guy had uh, had brown skin. Remember that? Uh, uh, let's let's listen to that. It was described to me as a dark-skinned male individual. I was told by one of these sources, who was a law enforcement official, uh, that this was a dark-skinned male. A source who had been briefed on the investigation. I could say, I should say, that the suspect was a dark-skinned male. And then that was John King, and he went on to even say that he had a Muslim, he had, he had a Middle Eastern complexion, which... You know, the Huffington so Post reported that one of the suspects was uh, showing some side boob. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There on it. So I was watching CNN, and uh, they had the guy come on, and he started to talk about the way the media had misreported the Boston bombing suspect uh, apprehension, and I was like, oh, this guy's going to bust CNN's right on CNN? He's going to give it to him? Well, let's listen to what he says, and you'll see why I, I have you know, this and, and I, I love the way that we've been cautious at each step here, and we know that... Yeah, he loves the way that they've been cautious <laughs> at each step. Each step they've been cautious, except for that time when they weren't, and they got the story completely wrong. Okay. And I... I love the way that we've been cautious at each step here and we know the last four days uh, the police have made errors the you know eyewitnesses have made errors it's easy to make errors oh, I, I think you <laughs> skip somebody <laughs> the police made errors the eyewitnesses made errors mm -hmm. it's easy to yeah you made the errors I don't know if you remember that when you guys saying brown-skinned and they had them remember that stuff uh, but one of the things to keep in mind is is that we aren't good at our jobs <laughs> and so we uh, we are under ratings pressures like everybody most of the guys here aren't even news people <laughs> oh, let's be honest right there I mean I don't know where did Anderson Cooper come from so then they got so nervous at CNN that they were afraid to report anything for a little while, right? So uh, I was uh, watching this one guy, and he was trying to get a live report. He was reading his phone. Someone just gave him some information, and let's listen just to it. Just got a, uh, a, a note, uh, apparently, um, to, from State Police Spokesman David Procopio, who uh, 
Well, I don't want to go with that just yet. I can tell you that. <laughs> I'm a scared. Yeah, he told me to stop making crap up. I think that's what he was telling me. I'm sorry, folks. He thinks I'm really cute on camera. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. I lost confidence in my own judgment since John Keaton make us look like as reliable as a drunk teenager. So I'm not going to report this right. Now, trust me, folks, the information on this note is unbelievable. But first, a word from our sponsors. <laughs> Okay. Verizon is Verizon is offering me a discount on. I mean, that's kind of wild, right? The guy I'm being handed a note here. It's like, oh, this. Oh, I can't. I'm not going to say that. It's like you're on the news. You can't do that. You can't tease me like that. And finally, Times' Joe Klein was happy to see Barack Obama angry in his speech about the failure of federal gun legislation because, as he explained in the May 13th edition of the magazine, it signals the emergence of a new militant center fed up with extremists on both sides of the aisle. Obama's anger, quote, was directed at the plague affecting no paralyzing our public life. The ability of well-funded extremist groups to thwart the will of the overwhelming majority. This is a problem that goes well beyond the gun issue. It has infected liberal and conservative lobbying groups alike. Their constant screeching defiles the mass media and drowns out voices of sanity. It is well past time for political moderates to speak as forcefully as the snake oil salesmen who are hijacking our democracy. Close quote. So the gun lobby distorts a debate over guns, and the lesson is that both sides are doing it? But wait, Klein does name some on the other side, including Democrat Jim Dean, Howard Dean's brother, who wrote a fundraising letter expressing disgust with Barack Obama's budget because it cuts old age benefits. This is an extremist parallel to the gun lobby because, Klein explains, the cuts the president called for are very modest. Okay, that's Klein's opinion, but it doesn't fit his thesis. Those benefit cuts are wildly unpopular. So Dean isn't thwarting the overwhelming majority. He's representing it. Klein also names something he calls the civil libertarian lobby as a left-leaning boogeyman, but likewise fails to name a single instance of that vague grouping thwarting the people's will. But never mind. The point is that both sides are extremists worth ignoring. And the center, where Klein lives, is where the righteous anger belongs. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm John Kerr. Members of the right-wing media have engaged in a campaign to pressure the mainstream media for providing what they term insufficient coverage to the murder trial of Dr. Kermit Gosnell. Here's CNN's Aaron Burnett. 
there are many people out there, as you're aware, on the right who are saying, look, it's pro-choice people on the left who aren't going to covering this story because they're pro-choice and this hurts their agenda. It's such an awful, horrific thing. It'll make people more adverse to abortion. That's bad for them, so they're not covering it. What do you say to those people as someone who reports on this issue? And Eric Bowling on The Five. There's another murder trial underway that isn't getting much attention in the press. It involves the murders of seven newborns. The capital murder trial of Pennsylvania Dr. Kermit Gosnell. But while Burnett and Bowling suggested that media on the left may have failed to cover the trial of Dr. Kermit Gosnell for political reasons, neither had previously covered Gosnell's story. Now that we found out that the bombers in Boston were Muslim, oh, here comes Fox News. What did I tell you? I told the the minute we found out they were Muslims, they're going to roll up their sleeves and say, it's all the Muslims, hate the Muslims. Now, whatever, it's a white guy that does shootings. Now, in this case, three people were killed, 250 injured. It's a horrible, horrible situation. In Newtown, we had 26 victims in the school alone, let alone the mom, etc., okay? 20 of them were young kids. 26 people killed in that one school. No, 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 it doesn't count, doesn't count. No, it's not connected to anything. No, no, just move along. No, no, that never counts. That never counts. All those shootings by white people doesn't count. All those shootings by Christians doesn't count. Okay, you say they're not connected, but I agree with you. They're not connected. But whenever it's a Muslim, it's all connected. It's all connected, right? Well, how about the right-wing extremists? They, Eric Rudolph blows up abortion clinics. He's the Olympic bomber. He set off a bomb in our Olympics. And he's connected to all the other abortion killers. The, Dr. George Tiller killed by Scott Roeder. Timothy McVeigh, an extremist that's right-wing against the government, goes and blows up the federal building in Oklahoma. Not connected, not connected. Look away. Two Muslims, all connected. All Muslims are guilty. Here comes moron Greg Gutfeld. Muslim versus Christian extremism is not apples to apples. It's comparing Hurricane Katrina to a squirt gun, which is why they embrace root causes, the detached response to evil. Let's simply focus on the personal turmoil of the bombers, not the real moil they cause. So we spend less time trying to stop evil and more time trying to understand it. We become the Clarissa to their Hannibal. Our obsession with their death inevitably makes them more appealing. We all don't wage jihad when we're sad. Bottom line, the punk placed a bomb next to a child. Why will not change that fact? It's amazing to me. They, they bask in their stupidity and their ignorance. They drink it up. They're like, why try to bother finding out it's evil, man? <laughs> Look at these nerds trying to figure out what. Hey, you know why we're trying to figure it out, Greg? So we can prevent the next one. You're such a simple, simple man. I feel sick for you, man. You go through the world like, I don't know why my wife cheated. I don't know why I owe this money. I don't know why anything. I don't, that evil, good, evil, good. And of course, in the midst of all this, he has a why anyway. It's the Muslims. It's always the Muslims. It's Oklahoma City, 168 people killed. All that carnage. It's a squirt gun. That, that, no, 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 no. Whatever right-wing extremists kill people, they're never connected and it never counts. But if a Muslim does it, well, that's evil. Greg Gutfeld, the genius, has figured it out. And he figured it out without even looking into why.
Why would profit-seeking businessmen like the right-wing Koch brothers be interested in buying the money-losing newspapers of the Tribune Company? That's what Amy Chozik wonders in an April 21st New York Times report, and there's one possible answer. Quote, the papers could serve as a broader platform for the Koch's laissez-faire ideas, close quote. But if buying newspapers to advance political views worries you, stop. Chozik has anonymous sources who say fears about editorial meddling are unwarranted. One unnamed source who attended a Koch seminar said the Koch strategy, quote, was never, how do we destroy the other side? It was, how do we make sure our voice is being heard? Close quote. Another said the papers would be entirely separate from their strong right-leaning political views. Chosik also quoted a Koch flack, saying the brothers, quote, respect the independence of the journalistic institutions, close quote. That's a nice thought, but Mother Jones' Andy Kroll reminded us that talk is just talk. In response to critical reporting about their involvement in the tar sands business by David Sasson of the Pulitzer-winning Inside Climate News site, the Kochs pressured Reuters to stop running Inside Climate stories. Reuters declined. But as Sasson told Kroll, quote, What we've experienced of them firsthand makes me think they would not be trustworthy stewards of the honorable traditions of journalism, close quote. Now, maybe that assessment isn't as exciting as a well-placed anonymous source, but it's a far more revealing glimpse of how the Kochs might actually behave as media owners. You gotta hand it to the Koch brothers. They're nothing if not systematic in their attempt to ram right-wing ideas into our heads. As you probably heard, they're angling right now to buy the Tribune Company and thus own not just the Chicago Trib, but also the LA Times, the Hartford Current, and the Baltimore Sun. Even though newspapers seem to be dying, the Koch brothers get it that they still exercise sway over our minds. They set the news agenda, and when you count traffic to their websites, they're reaching more people than ever before. And that's what the Koch brothers want. They want to set the agenda and reach more people. That's why over the last few decades, they funded one right-wing think tank after another, and that's why they've invested in astroturf groups like the Tea Party, and Americans for Prosperity. They understand that there's a war of ideas going on, and they intend to win it. So for all the talk on Fox News about the left-wing media and the role of people like George Soros, it's actually right-wing billionaires who've been much more clever in their strategy to take over the American mind. Between Rupert Murdoch, who also wants to buy the Trib, and the Brothers Coke, we're getting our butts kicked. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Folks, you know, for some time, there has been a flush rush movement, particularly following his attack on a graduate student who dared, well, I should be fair, it was a female graduate student who dared to speak in front of Congress like a harlot. Since that time, Rush Limbaugh's time, um, Rush Limbaugh's uh, business has gone down the tubes. As reported uh, at uh, Radio, what is this called? Radio Inc. Uh, on a Tuesday earnings call that was um, led by CEO Lou Dickey of the Cumulus Media Empire, which, of course, is uh, like uh, the, the, the radio company that owns or contracts Rush Limbaugh. When asked specifically about the network business and the impact of the talk segment, because they own other stations, Dickey answered without naming names, quote, we've had a tough go of it this last year. The facts are indisputable. It's been a few days of fighting between Cumulus and the Rush Limbaugh camp with anonymous leaks coming from both sides. On Monday, Rush's people made it clear they were not happy with Dickey blaming any past company revenue shortfalls on Rush, and they didn't want to hear it again on Cumulus's quarterly conference call. Dickey never mentioned Rush by name in the call, only the statement above. Then, a very high-ranking Cumulus official That's weird. Oh, Cumulus owns just about everything. You should turn that off, I guess. Sent the following statement to Radio Inc. and asked not to be sourced. Well, that didn't work either. 48 of the top 50 network advertisers have, quote, excluded Rush and Hannity orders. Every major, major national ad agency has the same dictate. In other words, Rush is on a do not, what, what happens is they make a big ad buy. They don't buy it for specific stations generally, these corporations. They buy it for a segment of radio. We want this on... Top 50 radio. We want this on sports radio. We want this on talk radio, but we want it on talk radio, but not on Rush or Hannity. 
apparently. 48 of the 50 biggest. Cumulus was hoping to challenge Rush Limpa by hiring Mike Huckabee. Yet there is word that Huckabee may not be able to stay in this for the long run. He may not. The reason why he may be making these predictions about this Benghazi bringing down President Obama in an impeachment hearing is probably because he won't be on the radio, uh, according to the timeline he gave. It's hard out there. Once you've had that big uh, TV money to go and do radio every day for a couple hours, man, you're just like, why? Let me just go back to the, let me go on the speaking circuit and make 50 grand to talk. So there you have it, folks. Uh, Rush Limbaugh um, expects soon that he'll be jumping to a different um, set of affiliates soon. That would be my guess. And finally, right-wing radio hosts talk about the accused Boston bombers as being motivated by or perhaps emblematic of their religion. But they're not the only ones. On April 28th, New York Times columnist Tom Friedman argued Muslim culture has some explaining to do. He was incensed that the Sarnayev brothers apparently cited the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as motivation for their attack. That's a non-sequitur, he explained, and, quote, we've allowed radical Muslim groups and their apologists to get away with it, close quote. As he explained, the suspects were so upset by something America did in a third country that they just had to go to Boylston Street and blow up people who had nothing to do with it. Too often we just nod our heads rather than asking, what kind of sick madness is this? Now, we doubt that many people really nod their heads at killing innocents, but most would agree that responding to violence by attacking people who had nothing to do with that violence is pretty sick. And it's also precisely what Tom Friedman endorsed after the 9-11 attacks, telling Charlie Rose in May of 2003 that popping the terrorist bubble meant that the U.S. had to, quote, go over there and take out a very big stick close quote, over there, meaning Iraq, Afghanistan, and anywhere else. He went on. And what they needed to see was American boys and girls going house to house, from Basra to Baghdad, um, and basically saying, which part of this sentence don't you understand? You don't think, you know, we care uh, about our open society? You think this bubble fantasy, we're just going to let it grow? Well, suck on this. Okay, that Charlie was what this war was about. We could have hit Saudi Arabia; it was part of that bubble. Could have hit Pakistan. We hit Iraq because we could. Sick madness is right.
There is some criticism of the White House Correspondents' Center. I've criticized it in the past. I've also gone to it, and I'll explain what I think is the difference in a minute. But first, I want to go to Tom Brokaw's criticism. First, a succinct point he made recently when challenged about his earlier criticism. Let's watch. What we're doing with that dinner, as it has been constituted for the past several years, is saying, we're Versailles. We'll let the rest of you eat cake. That's a very succinct way of putting it. And now he's been criticizing this dinner for a couple of years now. Let me show you what he said back in 2012. If there's ever an event that separates the press from the people, it's supposed to serve symbolically. It's that one. It is time to rethink it. I don't think the big press event in Washington should be that kind of glittering event where the whole talk is about crystal champagne, who had the best party, and who got to meet the most people. And believe me, that's what all the talk is about, okay? And everybody's so self-satisfied at the dinner, and they love rubbing elbows with, Oh, there's the general from General Shelton. I do declare, how are you? Oh, look at that. That's... I was going to say Bob Novak, but wrong again, Bob. Bob's dead. Uh, but you get it, the reporters. Oh, Joe Klein, oh, from Time Magazine. Oh, fantastic, right? And they're very, very chummy, and everybody says it, and everybody admits it. Now, uh, Noah Rothman, who's a conservative for Mediate, but who uh, agrees our contempt here, put it really well, so I wanted to quote him. He said, this month, E! Entertainment Network announced that they would live stream the red carpet at the White House Correspondents' Dinner on Saturday night for the first time. The nexus of celebrity, journalist, and politician is finally complete. That's so true. What are you wearing? Who cares what you're wearing? You're supposed to be a watchdog of the government. And now, on the other end of the spectrum, and I don't know, Lieber, which is uh, politics, but I do know his contempt for Washington. He's a, a reporter for New York Times Magazine. He's about to come up with a big uh, book about Washington, D.C., and how incestuous it is. Politico's already done a preemptive strike on him. How dare you? And Politico, of course, is the protector of the Washington, D.C. establishment. Uh, and he was uh, being interviewed, and he had some really good points to make about the dinner as well. There's a level of self-congratulation and self-celebration and, and so forth that can be very, um, you know, somewhat, somewhat at odds with the mood of the rest of the country and how people view the media. Now, the New York Times does not attend the Correspondents' Dinner anymore. Uh, why is that? Well, I think the reasoning is, um, and Dean Baquet, who was then the Washington bureau chief, and I think this was around 2007, decided that it just felt too cozy, it felt too, not too festive, but it, it did not feel like the right message to be sending to our readers to um, really be, you know, in such a, a chummy and, and sort of festive setting with the people we're covering. And I think the New York Times is overall right about that. Now, I have attended the dinner, so why is that the case? Well, look, I think that if you did this one night of the year, and it was kind of awkward because otherwise you're at each other's throats, and those are the people who are the watchdog of the government. Remember, that's what the fourth estate is supposed to be. The media is supposed to say, we're looking out for the people of this country, and we're going to make sure the government is in check. And so that night would be super awkward, like, oh, that's the guy I criticize all the time. Oh, that's the story I broke about a scandal that that politician has. Well, then I would say that's great. If it's the exception in that 364 days out of the year, the press is holding the government accountable, great. And the one day they get together and they're friendly and they eat dinner together, I would say that makes a ton of sense. And I would go and I've got no problems with that. The problem is, as I went and I saw it and I told you guys when I went, it's not the exception. It's the rule. 
They're chummy every day. They're not holding those people accountable. And most of the people in that room are there because they didn't hold the government accountable. Because they gave them a free pass. Because if you ruffle feathers, you're gone. You don't get access to those politicians, and you get moved out of important spots, whether it's on TV or elsewhere. So New York Times is right overall when they say it is too cozy. And it's co too cozy 365 days out of the year. It's not the exception. It's the rule. And that's the real problem with the dinner. Chris from Colorado Springs. Hey, I just uh, wanted to call to respond to your, your first voicemail from the last show. Oh, it's James Hay from Santee, California, calling again. John talking about him being fed up about the term WMDs. As with so many words and terms, WMD has different meanings in different contexts. The complainers are thinking of the use of WMD in international relations and warfare. However, the FBI does not deal with warfare. It uses a definition in U.S. Code Title 18, Crimes and Criminal Procedure. And he brought up a very good point about how it needed to be kept in context. And, and substantively, I agree with him, but I also feel that you know, WNDs, the reason I'm upset with it is because the definition under the law for the FBI, I think he misquoted it, I don't have it directly in front of me, but it specifically states about explosives, which is frustrating. Because if you think about what happened in Boston, you know, it was, it was tragic. And like Dan Carlin said, this, this, it's kind of hard to, I don't want to minimize it, but the simple fact of the matter is that there are other things that have happened recently, like the shootings in Newtown, that really was mass destruction. I mean, I know that more than 100 people got injured, but only three people died in Boston, and thank God for that, that more people didn't. But the fact that we couldn't charge, let's just say those Denier brothers showed up with Bushmasters, AR-15s, or, you know, M4s, whatever, and they unleashed on people, technically they wouldn't be able to be charged with a weapon of mass destruction. And I think why the government, why the FBI did this is it was a dog whistle to people. You know, we have that term, my, my generation, kind of the, you know, millennials or whatever the hell we're called, you know, we heard that term and it held such a weight to it that they wanted to charge that guy with that so he could be a capital offense so they could kill him. That's why they used WNB. Not because he actually used a weapon of mass destruction. And I realize that criminal versus war are two completely different things, and I respect that caller's point about that. But if this pressure cooker bomb is a weapon of mass destruction, then every single semi-automatic weapon that can wreak that kind of havoc, that has that many rounds, that can do the kind of damage that was done at Sandy Hook or in Aurora, real close to home where I am, that's a weapon of mass destruction too. And But it's not classified that way under the law, and that's the problem I have with them using that term that if it's going to be mass destruction, have it cover everything. Or don't have it cover anything at all. Don't just have it be some dog whistle out there just to get, you know, people hyped up and feared up and, yeah, this is a terrorist used weapons of mass destruction. So anyway, that's all I got, Jay. Thanks for everything. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Ray Al from San Diego. Uh, I love your show. And I just finished listening to the second Boston bombing show, and I was... Uh 
I thought about the comment that you just made, the story from the wedding when you were talking about how uh, you don't believe that there are rude cultures. Um, I think I can see what that person was talking about when you consider that they interpret rudeness as the actions and not the intent. If we talk about intent for rudeness, then I agree with you. No culture uh, out there is, is teaching its members to be intentionally rude to other people. But I think if you just interpret actions, uh, you can easily see how one culture would interpret another culture's actions as rude. Uh, a great example is personal space. That's, uh, that's something very different between cultures. And, and I think if you come from a culture where personal space is defined as, as a wide range of, of space around you, uh, and then you go somewhere where people tend to stand closer or just give you less personal space because that's how that culture defines personal space, then yes, you would walk around feeling that everybody is rude and in your face. They don't mean to be rude, they're not trying to offend you, they're just doing whatever it is that, that they learned as part of that culture. So I think that could be interpreted as a rude culture. But like I said, I, I, I think if you look at it from your perspective, from the intent perspective, then yes, there are no rude cultures, there are no criminal cultures, uh, it's just individuals. And we should probably always interpret things based on intent and not on actions. Thank you and keep up the great work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I wanted to follow up today on the conversation about rudeness, as we just heard referenced uh, by the last phone call played today. And so if you didn't hear you know, my original comments on it, the basic idea is that I went to an intercultural wedding. One of the cultures there was totally white Americans like me and the other was something else sort of of the old world it doesn't really matter what they were but you know distinctly uh, different culture from uh, white Americans and although the wedding was perfectly fine went off without a hitch there was some inevitable cultural tension there that I think you can probably understand just on a gut level instinct that that's the sort of thing that is going to be there in a situation like that and it even came to the point where because of some of these tensions that were going on, like I said, not a big deal, but one person uh, said, you know, one white person leaned over, said to another white person, you know, I just don't like rude cultures, implying that, you know, someone had been rude, they felt, you know, offended, and then went ahead and besmirched the entire culture of the uh, people she was referring to. And I thought that was ridiculous. So I went on the show and said that there's no such thing as rude cultures. And, you know, so then we just heard from the caller today who sort of laid out the case that, you know, there could be such a thing as a rude culture if you were to focus on the actions rather than the intent. The caller actually, you know, didn't end up agreeing with that perspective, but, you know, he voiced it. And I heard from a few other people who were basically making that case as well, saying um, that, that, you know, hey, Jay, like you might have missed the point a little bit during your conversation. Uh, because maybe there really is such a thing as a rude culture. It just depends on how you look at it, you know, because if you, uh, well, the example today was like from personal space. If you're an American, you go to Europe, you might find yourself with less personal space than you're used to. And you think, well, hey, like, why are you getting so close to me? That's rude. And then you think all of Europe is rude. And so, yeah, I, you know, I guess that's one way to look at it. But when I hear these people saying, hey, you, you might have missed the point a little bit, I think, no, that is my point. We're just coming at it from the other perspective. Yes, it's very easy to call an entire culture rude when you look at it 
from an entirely ethnocentric perspective and by defining rudeness based on the action rather than the intent. But my point is that although that is the case, we shouldn't do that because that perspective is completely detrimental to all involved, you know? I mean, words have meaning and the word rude is distinctly negative. And so, you know, in a world where we already have cultural tensions, referring to other cultures as rude, as a blanket statement, just because some perfectly, you know, acceptable cultural you know, or aspects of other cultures appear rude from an American perspective to then label the entire culture as rude is it, it does a disservice. You know, that seems obvious to me. And so the way I see it, I think that we're working towards a, a global multicultural society. And the only way to do that is to discard the idea of ethnocentrism, you know, where we, we look at the entire world through our own culture and at worst actually consider our culture to be, superior to all others and actually be understanding of where people are coming from. And that's everything from, you know, being able to excuse some unintentional rudeness from time to time to recognizing the, the difference between, you know, not actually excusing, but understanding the reasons for acts of terrorism. So on one extreme, we have absolute morons that we, you know, like the one we heard from today from Fox News saying he didn't care what the reason was for an act of terrorism because it didn't matter. You know, in his world, things are either good or evil and that's it. It doesn't matter the reasons behind it. And he should be roundly mocked for his simple mindedness as, as was done today, thankfully. And though it may be a far cry from that level of stupidity to think it's more important to judge, you know, a person's actions rather than, than the intent behind those actions when it comes to something as simple as an intercultural faux pas, I don't think you want to find yourself thinking even 1% in the direction of someone like the Fox News dude that we heard from today. You know, as Sandra Day O'Connor, former uh, Supreme Court justice, once famously said, to avoid these ends... We must avoid these beginnings and, you know, a greater understanding of everything from terrorism to unintentional rudeness helps lead the way step by step to a better world full of better people and more peace and less of that inevitable cultural tension. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you're not already subscribed to the show, there are lots of ways to do it. Everything from iTunes to the standard RSS feed to a variety of great apps for smartphones. There's even a best of the left app made specifically for the show built for iPhone and Android. Thanks also and especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and Just a fond farewell to a friend